Well, my husband and I, Jeff, are going on our 24th year of being married. Is that a time warp or what? This is why you come to Bible study and you don't ditch out after small group because you miss pictures like this. And as we're getting closer to 25 years, you know, a, a lot of people at 25 years renew their vows. And we've talked a little bit about it. I don't know that it's something that we will do, but it did make me want to think and look back to our original vows. If we were going to renew them, it'd be nice to know what they were. And so I'm thumbing through all my stuff, and we wrote some of our vows. We had traditional vows, and we wrote our own vows. So I'm going through all of our wedding stuff, and I can't find our vows. I have receipts from our honeymoon of the dinner that gave my husband food poisoning in Puerto Vallarta, but I don't have our vows. How crazy is that? So I was stuck to watch the video. Now that's fun. (laughs) Writing down, pausing our vows. And I did remember that we had two sets of vows and one set actually, a third set for our rings. It was interesting that our first set was down below and we did the traditional the traditional, I promise to love, comfort, honor, keep, in sickness and in health, rich or poor, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. And once we committed to those vows, then we came up on the altar. And then we did our vows that we had written ourselves. I assume prayerfully. As I think about the possibility or the opportunity to face Jeff and to repeat these vows or renew these vows, Quite honestly, ladies, I'm overwhelmed. Knowing what I know now about life, after 24 years, and those of you who've been married for a while know what I mean, after 24 years of marriage, richer or poorer, it has totally different meaning. Not just the stresses of finances and what that does to your marriage and the stresses of money, but also sickness and in health. We've had a severely disabled child been given to us who's had surgery after surgery. The divorce rate among parents of kids with special needs is twice as high, and I understand why. The whole idea of forsaking all, not forsaking all others until death do me part, what it takes to commit myself to never even in my mind go down that path of what it would be like to be married to someone else. Yes, after 24 years of life with this man, and he's okay with me saying this, it would be very different to say those vows now. It would be far more meaningful. I know I would never get through them without weeping because I understand much more. I can't wait to see what I understand at 50 years, Lord willing, but I understand much more what it means to keep vows and what it means to break them. The pain that I have caused when I have not honored and loved and comforted. So I think about these and Knowing what I know now about marriage and myself, I wonder how differently these vows would be, the ones we wrote ourselves. I think they would be different. I will spare you what we wrote. But I think that I now that I know who I am, now I know my weaknesses better, I would probably underscore different things than what I said as a 23-year-old. Idealistic, stars in her eyes. I think about this with the people of God and the renewing of their vows. To move forward, as we saw in Nehemiah 11, to move forward and to repopulate this holy city, they had to vow again. They knew they needed to. But before they did, before they repopulated, they did come back to these vows, and although they committed to all of God's law, they underscored some specifics. 
It's as if they knew after breaking their vows and seeing where it took them, the curses and the captivity, they know themselves better and they know better what they need to vow. And so although they commit to all of God's law, they underscore relationships, marital relationships, rest, and resources. Now, as we looked at last week, we are no longer under the old covenant. Pamela did a beautiful job of showing us how we're in the new covenant in Christ. We no longer look to the temple as the city of God or the place of God. We don't offer sacrifices for the covering of sins. Jesus went behind the veil, offered his perfect blood as a sacrifice for us. And so now the house of God, the temple of God, the dwelling place of God is our bodies, our heart, our bodies, our soul. And as they needed to commit themselves to not neglect the house of God, the temple, ladies, we, if you're like me, need to commit ourselves to not neglect the house of God, our body, our heart, our soul. And if we're honest, human nature hasn't changed, has it? If we looked honestly at ourselves, maybe the things that we confessed a few weeks ago when we had that time of confession, we would have to say that we need to underscore relationships, marriage, single or or married. We need to underscore rest. Wow. In this time, in this age, we need to underscore resources and how they're being used. So I think that before we jump into Nehemiah 11, if you'll let me, I think we need to go back to Nehemiah 10 and look at these things that were underscored and see ourselves. First, they underscore hearts, restoring their hearts. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Nehemiah 10.30. Relationships. Knowing what we know now, we realize that breaking our vow to you, your law concerning marriage, has left us dry, damaged, and distant. Now, the people of God at that time, the Israelites, they used marriage for what they thought would advance them. They were poor. They were destitute, and they believed that if they, and it made sense on a human level, that if we arrange marriages with the surrounding nations, we'll have prosperity and we'll have protection. So they were looking to marriage to advance themselves. They were looking to marriage in an advantageous, a worldly advantageous way. And as God had promised, they paid a huge spiritual price. And if we're honest, we see that in our own lives, that when we look to marriage, as something to give us merely personal advancement rather than to glorify God, we will pay a price. This is that curse that they said. They made a promise and accepted the curse, which is the consequences. They paid a huge price, a snare. Exodus 34, 12 through 16, God had promised it, and it came to pass as it always does. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God, jealous for your good. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Boy, God doesn't mind being blunt, does he? In this passage, God is not a racist. He's a monotheist. He is the one true God, and he knows he has created us to worship the one true God. And if we don't worship him, we will worship everything else. And if we connect ourselves in an intimate way with one who doesn't worship him, we will be led astray. 
These gods of the surrounding nations worshipped false gods. It led their hearts astray. These gods called for lewd, public, um, sexual acts as a form of worship. I was starting to think, well, that's not really relevant today. Yes, it is, isn't it? They called for their children to be sacrificed to the god of Molech, a statue of him that they would put them and burn their children in these fiery hands. We don't literally do that, but in the gods that we serve, we do offer our children. The Israelites have realized that they have missed the wholeness God intended for their hearts by forsaking his purpose for marriage and instead thinking that they could advance themselves through this institution. So they go back to the creator of marriage, to his law surrounding it that restores hearts, and they go back, and we need to go back. Genesis 2, 24 to 25, we'll go far back. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The laws that God gives concerning marriage are because marriage is so precious. It's a spiritual relationship intended to be the most intimate of all human relationships. It's intended to be set aside and totally different than all other human relationships. A place where there is safety, vulnerability, where two people are committed to something greater than themselves, committed to someone greater than themselves. Ladies, there is no safety in marriage to someone who's not committed to something greater than himself. You can't be safe. That's what God intends for marriage, and that's why it is so crucial that we not be unequally yoked, because we miss God's intention. This vulnerability, this nakedness, this unashamed nakedness, creates an environment of pleasure. God has created our bodies and the marriage relationship to bring pleasure, but that can't happen when there isn't safety. And there can't be safety when there isn't the worship of the one true God. Not the way God intended. This oneness, this vulnerability, this intimacy, this pleasure is to be apologetic. It is intended for the world to see who God is, for the world to marvel and say, wow, that is something I don't see in the world. Forgiveness, service, sacrifice. What is it about this couple? They serve a God, and their marriage is a picture of who God is. That's the intent for marriage. When I look at mine and Jeff's marriage for the last 24 years, and you can put the next picture up, Roger, if you're out there, for the next 24, over the last 24 years, Jeff has kept his vow to me of purity because he made the vow to God. And he's okay with me sharing that. I know that if it were just up to vowing to me, I'm pretty ugly and pretty rotten over these 24 years, and he'd have been gone, quite honestly. And the same is true for me. But because Jeff has made a vow to God, not that he can't break that vow, we are human and it happens, but I am more secure in Jeff's commitment to me because it's to God. It's to something greater than himself. It's to something much bigger than me. And I rest, if I do rest, I'm careful to be protective of marriage, but I am thankful that it is beyond me. It's to something beyond me. I know that it would break Jeff's heart more to break his vow to God than to me. 
and in that there's safety. It's evidence of who God is. Gary Thomas, in his book Sacred Marriage, says, God planted marriage among humans as yet another signpost of his eternal spiritual existence for people to see he is, he lives. If I believe the primary purpose of marriage is to model God's love for the church, I will enter into this relationship and maintain it with an entirely different motive. In other words, when the marriage isn't going well and I'm committed to forgiving, do I not evidence love of God? Not just when there's intimacy and things are going well, but when I stay committed. No matter what, when the rest of the world would say, you don't need to do it, you're not happy. We evidence God's character. To see marriage primarily as something for my own personal gain, my heart will miss something profound. It will look to someone else for something only God can give. I've said this a million times. No man is your soulmate. God is. And you cannot experience the intimacy of marriage until you let that go. It is this kind of mindset that I need marriage for my own personal use that can lead to being unequally yoked, to not waiting for God's best. And unequally yoked being being married to someone who isn't a follower of the Lord or a worshiper of him or disobedient to God's word, a non-believer will skew our worldview. It will skew our theology. No, we don't have a lot of people literally sacrificing babies to gods or doing public lewd acts. But if you don't serve Yahweh, you serve something. And when we are unequally yoked, we will battle. Our gods will battle. Now, this doesn't mean that if you're married to a non-believer that you should feel any condemnation. God wants to meet you right where you are. He wants to to love you, forgive you if you need to seek forgiveness. He wants to move you forward. And we can see through the scriptures beautiful passages of what God can do in an unequally yoked marriage. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about how a woman can sanctify the home that she's married to a non-believer. And by her gentle and quiet spirit, her trust in the God of the universe, God can use her to bring that man to faith doesn't always happen, but it often happens. You hear it over and over again. So if you are unequally yoked, or if you have a broken marriage as a result of this, this is not intended to to bring condemnation into your life. This is intended to give you hope, to rearrange your heart to where it should be, and to see that God can use you in a very powerful way in your home, to set your home apart. Women who have broken this vow, if given the chance, any woman I've ever talked to that has ignored God's law regarding this and has allowed herself to be unequally yoked, if given the chance, would recommit to this with seriousness. She would tell you that although this marriage is God's will now and she will stay committed to it and she will evidence God's love for, her, for this husband, she would tell you that if she could do it again, she would not do it. I've never met a woman who would say to me, I would just do it again. Because she knows the tension. She knows the difficulty. So if you are not married, range your heart around God's truth so you don't miss his blessing. Disobedience is always more costly than obedience. 
The Israelites were renewing their vow to embrace marriage as the seedbed of God's holy city, to look beyond what I need and what I want and to look at what God's plan was. And that is that marriage be the seedbed, the, the center from which community flows. To see it is hugely important. And knowing what they know now, they're going to teach this to their children. No matter what mistakes they've made, no matter how they have whored after other gods, they want more for their children. And isn't this an encouragement to us who have made mistakes and broken God's vow to move forward and to rearrange our hearts around God's truth in whatever place we find ourselves, single, divorced, remarried, to arrange our hearts around truth. We don't get to arrange the marriages of our children. Doggone it. But if we rearrange our hearts around God's truth, whether we are married or single, then our children or our spiritual children will have at least the opportunity to have their hearts arranged around truth. Our son was home this weekend for a visit. He's turning 22 and wrestling through a relationship. And he blessed us by saying something to us he has said to us a few times. At one point he was watching Jeff and I together and he said, I want what you and dad have. You can arrange a marriage for me, (laughs) he's told us before, because I want what you and dad have. What we have is nothing special in of itself. What Jeff and I have is a mess at times. But we're committed to God's perspective. We arrange our hearts around his priority of marriage. And I know that not all of our children will say that. Olivia may not ever say that to us. (laughs) There's no guarantees that just because we arrange our heart that our children or our spiritual children will. But at least we won't have regret for modeling something that is unbiblical. So rebuilt restored hearts. They know now that marriage is too intimate, too central to their own hearts and to the glory of God to mess with it. And then they look at their rebuilt bodies. Nehemiah 1031a, and if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. Rest. Oh, this is such convicting truths. The Israelites are saying, what we know now is that breaking our vows concerning rest has led to distance, to dryness, to damage. The Israelites used marriage like they did, or used rest like they did marriage. They used the Sabbath day to advance themselves. (gasps) Ouch. No other nations observed the Sabbath. Sound familiar? And they needed it. They needed to trade. They needed to buy. That's when the merchants came into town and they could argue, well, we're not really working. We're just buying stuff. And yet they realize that their lack of rest and who God is has led to their distance, their damage, their dryness. Knowing what we know now, we see that our neglect of the Sabbath is one of the root causes of our idolatry and our captivity. We commit to go back to the creator of rest who models what rest means. Exodus 28 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no, not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock. <laughs> I don't know how you do that. Or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. As we look at that passage, do we believe God needed to rest? He's God. No. Why did he rest? 
to glory in very good. Before he rests, he looks at all the creation and he says, very good. It is very good. He takes the seventh day not to recuperate, but to rejoice. And he's asked us to take a seventh day not just to recuperate, but to rejoice. God desires that we work and that we work hard about his kingdom six days and then take a day to stand back and leisurely take in the beauty of his creation, to take in the beauty of what he's allowed us to do with our hands, and more importantly, to stand amazed at what he's done in our hearts. Because if we have been hard at work for six days about the kingdom, we've been transformed. And we can say, good enough, very good. I've finished what you've asked me to do this week, and I can rest in what you've called me to do. Tim Keller says, definition of resting is to be utterly satisfied with what was done. As we work those six days according to what God calls us to do, there is a beautiful rest that can come if we let it. Exodus 31, 12, 13, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, listen to this, Above all you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. What does this mean? The Sabbath is for liberation. I don't know about you ladies, but I need a bit of liberation. I need to be free of my own self-importance. That I need to work seven days a week because otherwise it won't get done. Amen? We take this day to focus on the source of all we have, the maker of our hands and minds, the giver of every breath, strength, emotion, the owner and creator of all the land, the materials we use to work to free ourselves from ourselves. There's a beautiful uh, tension of this, this tension worked out in the film Chariots of Fire. If you're familiar with the film Chariots of Fire, it's about Eric Little and this incredible fast runner who went to the Olympics and um, chose not to run because his race is his dash race was on the Sabbath. And it shows this tension between these two different men, Harold Abrams, who is so intense about running. And when asked, why, do you, why are you so intense? He said, because I have 10 seconds to prove my existence, to justify my existence. In contrast, you have Eric Little, who when he finds out the 100-yard dash is on the Sabbath, he doesn't run. He's not defined by what he does. He's defined by the creator of the universe. And he freely, although he feels God's pleasure when he runs, he freely gives up a chance for the gold medal because he's not defined by what he accomplishes. He doesn't need 10 seconds to justify his existence. The Sabbath is for liberation, to free us from ourselves. And the Sabbath is for trust, to realize anew that our work neither creates us saves us or sanctifies us, God does. Oh, we can fall into the trap of thinking that we need to work hard to save ourselves, to sanctify ourselves, to reinvent ourselves. We need a Sabbath to stop taking ourselves too seriously. I need a Sabbath to stop taking myself too seriously. This has been so painful and beautiful, this process of taking apart the Sabbath for me. Deuteronomy 5.15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So why does he command them to keep it? To remember who frees you. You don't free yourself. He has done it. 
So to protect against self-sufficient arrogance and greed, I don't know about you, but I need a Sabbath. I need to tell myself at least one day a week the story of who I am. And that's the point of a Sabbath rest, is to preach yourself to yourself the story of who you are, to remember who it is that sanctifies you, to remember who it is that has saved you. And it's a powerful apologetic, just like marriage, when we can set aside a time and let the rest of the world work their little weary bones to death and say, I will glory in who God is for a day. It is a powerful testimony. Think of Chick-fil-A. How many of you said, isn't that amazing they're not open on Sundays? Do you know how much money they could make to be open on Sundays? Probably more than the rest of the days of the week put together. And yet, as Christians, they have decided we don't need prophets. We need to honor the Lord. I don't know about you, but I say, bummer, it's closed. Where are we going to go eat? And when I was thanking God for their testimony in the community, he said, and, and what about you? What about you? Do you realize if just Christians, oh, I shouldn't go there. Never mind. What about you? And so God has said to me, and this is to me, you search out the scriptures yourself. He has said to me, stop it. And so we had started this practice in our home of not going, not shopping and not going out to eat on Sundays. Of course, I was working myself crazy making a great lunch. And then going in my room and studying for six hours for the next, to work the, work the process of creating the next message that God had called me to give to all of you. And he has convicted me. You're trying to accomplish. You think you're so great not going shopping, but you're still trying to accomplish something. What do you think? You think you, you think I can't do this? You need to be liberated, young lady. And I've been processing and this and processing this, and then I had the joy of teaching um, another group of women this weekend on Saturday, by the way. And um, and preaching is great on Saturday. You know, we celebrate more the Lord's Day now. But and this this uh, gift was given to me by this group of women, precious women, and. The woman who gave it to me said she really had a word from the Lord for me, and it was, it, was, it was incredibly precious. I actually wept through it and couldn't teach the next session. But she had things for the different sage and the parsley, but what I wanted to share with you is what she said about the time. Here I am processing this whole thing and anticipating giving up studying on Sundays, which I, I think I need because I homeschool. I mean, I can give you a list of why I need to work on Sundays. And she gave me this, and she said, what God spoke to my heart about you with time is that as you cut back, you will multiply. And then I really lost it. And so I am asking you all to hold me accountable. Next week's message may not make a lot of sense. (laughs) And I want you to be gracious. (laughs) And my daughter will hold me accountable because I'm going to play with her on Sunday instead of locking myself in my room. Okay, sweetheart? To fulfill my call, I can miss the caller. And so I need an intentional physical rest that restores my heart, and so do you. It must be a rest that addresses my soul. It isn't just a time of recreation where I just let my brain go. That can be included. But a Sabbath rest is intended to rest not just the body, but the soul. Tim Keller says there is a deep need for soul rest without which physical rest is not going to help you. We can take a very long nap and still be incredibly tired. 
Because if we haven't let our soul rest, we haven't contemplated who he is and spent time glorying in who he is and recognizing that it is he that sanctifies and it's he that has saved us, our soul won't rest. And we need a soul rest. See, the Sabbath command isn't just about the don'ts, but it's a do. I love Isaiah 58. See the don'ts and see the do's. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isn't that amazing? Don'ts, own pleasure, talking idly. That's a real good use of the Sabbath. Going your own way. The do's delight. Ride on the heights. Feed on the heritage. Take a Sabbath to know who you are. Find pleasure in me. Delight in me. I know your heart. I know what it means. This is a timeless truth. Yes, it's a truth given to Israel, but it is a timeless truth. I like what John Piper says. Terribly convicting. Not many people really enjoy what God intended us to enjoy on the Sabbath, namely himself. People whose hearts are set more on the pleasures of the world than on the enjoyment of God will fill the Sabbath command as a burden and not a blessing. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus said in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath is a love gift to you and to me to meet the needs of our bodies, to, to direct that to the needs of our souls. And this kind of rest opens up our tight fist on our resources, our time, our money, a revived soul that can worship freely and sacrificially. Nehemiah 10, 32, 36, and 38. We will also take on ourselves the obligation of, to give yearly as a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons, and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. Resources. What we know now, knowing what we know now, breaking our vows concerning our resources, our time, our money, has left our souls distant, dry, and damaged. The Israelites, like marriage and rest, used their resources for what they thought would bring them personal advancement. We need to keep our best, our first. We're poor. We're destitute. Knowing what we know now, we see, as Randy Alcorn puts it, giving isn't a luxury of the rich, it's a privilege of the poor. Giving isn't a luxury of the rich, it's a privilege of the poor. We have robbed God and in the process robbed ourselves. Malachi 3.8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. What is this curse? Missed blessing. Obedience. My provision. Oh, we miss out on so much of what God wants to show us of his riches in us because we rob him by being tight-fisted being tight wads. We commit to go back to the creator of all good gifts, to generously, sacrificially return to him our best because it's all his. 
Deuteronomy 8.18 and Psalm 24.1, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. Knowing what we know now, we see that holding back our resources, whether it's money or time, actually it's both, has left our souls dry, damaged, and distant. We know now there is a direct correlation between sacrificial giving and spiritual intimacy. Ladies, there is a direct correlation between sacrificial giving and spiritual intimacy. If you are struggling with spiritual intimacy, very likely a possible root is that you're not sacrificially giving. When we sacrificially give, we get to see God move in ways that create intimacy that will blow our mind. God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our time. He wants us to see that we don't need it either. He wants to free us of the need for money. He wants to free us of the need to control our time and to see our riches in him. God is consistent. He is persistent that his people be marked by sacrificial generosity. It's an apologetic like marriage and like rest. It tells the world who owns us, where our heart is, where our heart is tethered. Is it tethered here or is it tethered in eternity? What a powerful apologetic when someone is unexplainably generous. I don't know. Money talks, right? And the releasing of money talks loudly. John Piper says, What you do with every sentence is something about your view of God and what he means to you, what your values are in this age, and what you think your few years on earth should be spent for. You can take a good look at your checkbook on Quicken if you've got it on the computer. And you can quickly evaluate what your view of God is and what you value. Ouch. The tight-fisted, the greedy, they miss the abundance of God. We think we cannot afford to give sacrificially. We really can't afford not to. Poured out blessings come not from 10% more security, comfort, or fun, but from sacrificial trust. These poured out blessings of Malachi 3, they're not always monetarily, but they are always spiritual. And I can't think of a better blessing than to be freed of greed, covetousness. Money is given to us to show us where our heart is anchored. William Borden was a Yale graduate and an heir to a fortune. He rejected a life of ease to take the gospel to the Muslims. Not even would he buy himself a car and instead gave thousands to missions. Eventually, he got to go on the mission field himself, and after four months in Egypt, he died of meningitis. In the cover leaf of his Bible sent back to his family were the words, no reserve, no retreat, no regret. Dying of meningitis, no reserve, no retreat, no regret. And on a tombstone in Cairo is his name. In the short years he lived, at the very end of that a testimony of who he is, it says, apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Talk about an apologetic. Talk about an evidence that God is alive. Money is given to show us where our heart is anchored. Matthew 6, 20 and 21, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy or with thieves break in and steal. Where where your treasure is, there is your heart also. I love how Randy Alcorn summarizes this verse. He says, 
storing up treasure, earthly treasures, and I would inject possessions, passions, and positions, isn't simply wrong. It's just stupid. It doesn't make any sense financially even. Giving interjects an eternal dimension even to the most ordinary day. Even tonight, as you drive home, you may have an opportunity to sacrificially give. If you obey the Spirit of God and you do that, you will interject the eternity into an ordinary day. Tomorrow, you will have an opportunity, whether it's to sacrificially give of your time or your energy or your finances, to interject eternity into an ordinary day. Randy Alcorn says, you couldn't pay me enough to not give. You couldn't pay me enough to not. He's become addicted to it. His own treasure principle book, if you haven't read it, read it. His own testimony is amazing. The Israelites, knowing what they know now, renew their vow to sacrificially give God their best of their time, their energy, their resources, to not neglect the house of their God. Today, knowing what we know If you're like me, you need to renew your vow to not neglect the temple of God, your body, your soul, and your heart. For the same relationships, rest, and resources are the source, really, of our dryness and our damage and our distance. Will we renew our commitment to to a spiritually restoring view of marriage, to see marriage as an apologetic, an evidence of who God is? Our Messiah, Jesus Christ, by giving his Perfect life for our sinful one has secured every provision we need and every protection we could ever ask for. He has freed us from needing marriage for personal advantage to look at marriage as an apologetic, whether it's a challenging marriage or a good marriage. It's still an apologetic. Whether we are married to an obedient believer of the word of God or a disobedient one, it can still be a powerful apologetic. Will we be one to the surrounding nations? Gary Thomas says, more than seeing marriage as a mutual comfort, we must see it as a word picture of the most important news humans have ever received, that there is a divine relationship between God and his people. Will we renew our commitment to a spiritually rebuilding experience of rest, to see rest, to let our rest be an apologetic to the world? The Sabbath rest for Israel pointed to Jesus, who would be their Sabbath, who would rise from the dead, who would die and then rise from the dead on that day of rest, creating new life. Jesus experienced infinite restlessness so that I could enter into his rest. My body and my soul need time to tell myself this story of who I am and who I'm not. Saved, sustained, sanctified by his works, not mine. Remember, rest is to be utterly satisfied in what was done. Will we renew our commitment to a spiritually reviving experience of our resources? To look at our time, our energy, our money as an apologetic. To where people will say, there is no other explanation for this life than that Christ is alive. For we know that our Lord Jesus, although he was rich, yet for our sake became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. What an enormous debt he paid to make us rich. And we don't get to experience those riches the way he intended if we're tight-fisted. 
When we sacrificially give, we get to experience the riches for which he became poor to give us. Our riches in him. So knowing what we know now, will we vow to not neglect the house of our God? The temple of his Holy Spirit. Our hearts, our bodies, and our souls.